Hello and welcome to The Stack. For this week's show, I speak with New Story on his new book, The Island Book of Records, about the iconic label. Plus, we also have reports from Iowa and Copenhagen. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking with the editor of a new book, retelling the amazing history of Island Records. The Island Book of Records brings the early years of this iconic record label to life. It's a true collector's item by the editor New Story, who fully documents the early period of the label. Neil had joined the label in 1974 before going on to co-run the press office into the mid-80s. Let's hear it from Neil. I worked at Ireland for very many years doing all sorts of kind of strange things. Prior to working at Ireland, I was at EMI. And to be truthful, I had no idea when I was kind of young and growing up and everything, I had no idea how you became part of the music industry. And anyway, what with one thing or another, I got an interview with EMI. They took me on lowest of the low. And a couple of years later, because Ireland was distributed and sold into the record shops by EMI. So every month, the Ireland guy would come down to our sales meeting. So gradually, you start to get to meet people, to know people. And then I got invited to become part of their fledgling sales force. And so joined that. And then did other things. The sales force was disbanded. I was given this crazy job of going on the road with every band that Ireland had at that time. So I was literally crisscrossing Britain and Europe on one tour after another. Came back from the B-52's first ever British tour and was told there were no more bands to go out with, so I didn't have a job anymore. I was made redundant without even you know realising it. Anyway, two weeks later, I got a call to say, can I come back into the office? And I thought, oh, damn it. You know, because they said I can use the car for a couple of months. And I thought, shit, they're going back on their word. They're going to have me car. And I, you know, I was living in the south of England in Bournemouth at the time. And anyway, so I drove up to the office and I kind of meandered in. And they asked if I'd go and see a guy called Rob Partridge. Rob had just joined or recently joined at that point in the, the press office. And he just got rid of his assistant. So we sat down, we chatted, and I thought it was all kind of, you know what it was friendly and everything but nothing more. i thought i was just going to give me car back anyway he said do you want to come and work in the press office so i said well i don't know anything about the press <laughs> and he went all right you'll learn so, so that's what happened i came back and my only condition was i suddenly for some strange reason i plucked up courage and i thought damn it they gave me this amount of money it wasn't very much but they gave me some money I said, can I keep the money that you gave me for making me redundant? So anyway, there was a big kind of meeting about that. And eventually somebody came and said, yeah, you can keep it. And I thought, all right, I've still got my car. Now I'm going to do something else and I'm back where I want to be. So Rob and I ran the press office together. He became director of publicity. My title changed to head of press, which was totally ridiculous because there were only two of us anyway. I mean, the great thing about being at Ireland was that people were given titles because you had a business card and all that stuff. But 
you know, basically we just got on and did what we did. And here you are, I mean, now writing about their legacy. I mean, how does that feel for you in a way? I think it is so important that a record company of not just their stature, but what they've given to the world of music has to be chronicled. It has to be chronicled properly. And the issue we're facing at the moment is, I'm sorry to say, people are dying. A whole musical generation is dying right before our very eyes. And basically nobody's doing anything about it. You know, I've been working on this in the background to other things that we've been doing for the better part of 15 years now. But it was only in the last five years that it really, really came into focus. And it came into focus because I was at a funeral of somebody who I'd known since I was 17, a guy called Mike Kelly, who was the drummer in Spooky Tooth. And he, maybe you'd known better as, as one of the founders of The Only Ones. Anyway, and we'd had this kind of on-off friendship, but over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, we'd become quite close and and we'd sit and we'd talk and we'd sit and talk at friends' houses. And, you know, he had this incredible memory, really amazing memory. Some people from that age don't have a good memory. He, Kelly's was amazing. And we just chat and, oh, I don't know. I wish I'd... T there was a one amazing train journey that we took into London he was telling me all about his time with Peter Frampton when the, the that live double album came out and I wish I'd had the ability to take that conversation it was just fascinating anyway so there is Kelly he's died and I'm standing at the in the church and we're all paying our respects and da 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 and it suddenly dawned on me I'm never going to speak to Kelly again and that was the real pivotal moment. I'm sorry for being long-winded, but that's the that's the real pivotal moment that I, I kind of said to myself, shit, you've got to get on with this because nobody else is going to do it. So that's really how it then started to really evolve from there. And it's mentioned in the book as well that it kind of needed that research because even the artists, especially perhaps from the first volume, I mean, there was not so much information about some of them or perhaps the wrong information as well. So I think this kind of process of cataloging was, was kind of necessary, actually. I mean, you're very right in that sense. The alternative is you look at the internet. Now, you look up on... You know, I mean, I love Cat Stevens dearly, but you look up on the Cat Stevens website, they haven't even got the right release dates for the first three Island albums. How is that possible? Mm -hmm. So therefore, if what we do isn't done, then people are ultimately another generation further down the line. They're going to rely on inaccurate information. And I just, I can't abide stuff like that. I really can't. It's so important, this. It is important. And I think the book will play a role as well. Because, of course, these days, you know, vinyl, I mean, I'm not even saying that it's going to a resurgence. I think it's been a few years now. But I think people like to know. There, I'm sure there are a lot of collectors that will have a look at the book and say, well, I don't have that vinyl. I mean, I'm not sure how easy it is to find. But I think it plays actually that role as well. Because people might want to revisit the music too. Well, I, I agree with you. Secondly, if you look again onto the internet, there isn't an accurate mm. listing of all Island albums. There really isn't. So what you've got in front of you is all the LPs from 1959 to 1968, everything in catalogue number, 
order rather, because that's the simplest way of doing it. And there's the unreleased records as are noted, and the obviously the released ones are noted. At the back, there are all the it's the first time it's ever been assembled, all the 45s and EPs. You know, it's 20 something pages of that. And that took months to put together because, you know, I don't have a full collection of 45s. Rob Bell, who did it with me, he doesn't have. So we were just, we were using every single source we could find and actually cross-checking, cross-checking, cross-checking to make sure it's accurate. There's a point of doing it if it isn't. And you, this is a hefty project as well, because I have the first volume here. It's 392 pages. And I know there will be, of course, a volume two and volume three. I mean, what can you tell us about what next actually for this project? Volume two covers the years 1969-1970. Uh, we're already working on it. We have been for a while. It's already at 440 pages, so it's bigger. <laughs> it's heavier. It's very pink. The one after that covers the years 1971-1972. I couldn't give you a page count on that. It's kind of got a greeny cover to it because it reflects the, the pink rim green palm tree label. The second one is due out September next year. The third one, I guess we're going to be September in the UK. The year after, what would that be? 2025. This is either I'm going to do this or it's going to kill me. One or the other. What do you think the spirit of the first volume meant for Island Records? I mean, I mean, I think it's a very important period as well. That's when they started. But what else can you tell us perhaps that it was different from the kind of upcoming iterations? I think that probably Chris would say this, David Betridge would say it, and they were the two key people at really right at the beginning, that they were kind of making it up as they went along. Mm. I mean, certainly when I worked there, you'd go into work, it was the most exciting thing imaginable because you never knew what was going to happen that particular day. You know, you'd have a structure to it. But don't forget, they were selling records out of the back of their cars. They split London in half. One had a minivan, one had a Mini Cooper, and they literally were selling records to the record shops that were servicing, if you like, the kind of the Windrush community, really, the immigrants. That's how everything began. And can you please name some of the artists? It's interesting here because there was, there's an EP here, well, from the Righteous Brothers. I had no idea about some of the artists. Of course, I know the more iconic ones that is very much Island Records, but it's, it's quite interesting looking at the list of artists here. I love Byron, you know, Byron Lee, right? I think it's excellent. Yeah, yeah. Tell us yeah. some, well, some of your favorites here. <laughs> some of my favorites, well, I think, Oddly, one of the favourites is there's an album, it has a black and white cover, and it's a picture of a very pretty girl, and it's titled John Foster Sings. Now, I spoke to Chris, I spoke to four or five other people who were at Ireland at that time. I wasn't, they were. And none of them could remember it. None of them could remember the genesis of that record. So what does that tell you? There was stuff that was coming out, but it's actually got lost in the mists of time. But then you have, I don't know, Club Scar 67, Volume 1, Volume 2. Those, you play those now, and they sound as good as the day they were first compiled. You've then got the Sioux recordings when Guy Stevens ran the Sioux label, and that became part of Ireland, with the great organ records, Jimmy McGriff, Billy Preston, 
You've got the Sue story, volume one, volume two, volume three. I mean, just amazing records, amazing records. And, you know, I know they're now distributed by, I think it's Ace have got the rights to Sue. But, you know, some of that stuff now, it's as good as it gets. I mean, who knew that James Brown released a 45 or a couple of 45s on Ireland, but he did. And you're very right. The Godfather of Soul. I mean, the Godfather of Soul and, and sounds there still fresh. I mean, as you say, it's not yeah. like nostalgia field. I think they're still quite super fresh, actually, some of those artists. Yeah, absolutely. So if somebody actually looks at that and then if it prompts people to go back and go, oh, I never knew that was on Ireland. Maybe I ought to have a listen to that. You know, Inez and Charlie Fox, everybody thinks that Mockingbird was this gigantic hit straight off the bat. It wasn't. It was what nowadays you probably term a club hit. But then it was kind of like a turntable hit, but it didn't sell that many. But, wow, the Soul Sisters, Soul Sisters backed by the Spencer Davis group at one point. Amazing stuff. And finally, Neil, I would like to ask us all your relationship with Chris Blackwell. I mean, we we did an interview with him last year at Monaco, and you mentioned perhaps that you gave him a copy of the book fairly recently as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. I mean, it was important enough for me to, it could have easily been posted to Chris. I just wanted to actually basically hand it over. I don't know whether that's, I don't know, I just, what, that's what, what happened anyway. I got a call saying that he was in the UK, and if I was able to get in because we live in France, then, you know, he'd make some time for me, and that's how it happened. He was very pleased with it. And, you know, there's no better reward in a way. But then this isn't all about rewards at all. This is all about doing it, doing it properly. And to be truthful with you, I'm absolutely flabbergasted that no other record label has commissioned something like this. I'm, it just doesn't, it defies belief for me. Otherwise, you know, what are our kids' kids? What are they going to be looking at? They'll look at it, something on their The smartphone. Wikipedia page. Yeah. And I mean, you look at that, I look at that, and it's it's not always accurate, and you know that, and I know that. Thank you very much, Neil. And the Island Book of Records is out now. Also, if you're interested, do tune in to an episode of Monocon Culture from 2022 with the founder of Island Records, Chris Blackwell. Just go to monocle.com. And now we head to Copenhagen. Founded in 2010, Danish design company and tradition is known for its reissues of Danish icons and new creations, which have put in regular appearances in the pages of Monaco magazine. Maybe less well known is that food and hospitality has always been part of the brand, thanks to Chef Soren West's lunchtime staff meals, always served at quarter past noon. And, since it opened in 2018, the Lille Petra Courtyard Café behind the company's gorgeous Copenhagen Center showroom. And now the company is moving into publishing with the Quarter Past Noon book, a three-volume compendium of recipes and stories from the past decade or so, designed by Savvy Studio and printed in Denmark. Monaco's Copenhagen correspondent Michael Booth went along to the Entradition showroom to find out more from the creative director behind the book, Lonnie Castle, and chef Soren, who, among other things, suggests in the book an unusual way of dealing with your discarded Christmas tree. Lonnie, we all know and love Entradition at Monaco uh, for your design, for your furniture, lighting and objet. Why a book project now? 
I think for many years we have discussed how, I mean, we would really like to make a book that was not just a traditional designer book about Arne Jacobsen and Werner Panton and all the classics. We would obviously like to put our whole portfolio and our culture and our brand in a box, but we really didn't know how to to put it out there. So I think when I met Søren, Søren, he helped me to open up the Café Lille Petra. We ended up saying, okay, what is actually our culture? What is it actually that we would like to to come out with in a book? And we believe that we have something that is not just a portfolio of, of really good designers and classic designers especially. We have a whole culture that is also about people and about food, about activities and events. We do quite a lot here to activate the brand. So um, when Søren said that he was co- going to come on board, because he, he did, <laughs> and you don't say no to, to Søren, um, <laughs> we actually decided to do this as a project together to go and document everything we do. Slowly but surely, it all came together, and we thought, okay, here is actually our brand book, because we can cover the designers, we can cover our network of, of creatives, we can cover our staff, our, our internals, and actually also put or show who we are as a brand. And it's called quarter past noon. What is quarter past noon, Søren? In Denmark, we eat lunch together in most uh, companies and most offices. And here it's a quarter past noon. Because be of, as well as the cafe, Little Petra, you take care of the staff yeah, meal, yeah. The, can- the, the canteen meal. And I always, uh, here I, I always make just one meal that is shared. It's kind of like at a family you would at home at your grandparents and so on. It's about just sitting together and speaking with each other. And So everybody brings their own culture and their own background. So that's also something we want to show and also show everybody that, you know, you take your time to learn one another and everybody brings something to the table. So it's, it's just, we just use the food as a language to bring down barriers and and also when you travel overseas to meet your suppliers and the craftspeople who make and traditions products. Yeah, we, we went to, to Portugal to visit the factory that are producing our Jaime Hayon series, where it's mainly women working. And Søren got in touch with, with um, one of the, I think it was the manager or the owner of the, the factory. Well, it's a mother and a daughter. Yeah. A lot of them have been working there for over 30 years. There's a lady... Her name is Alice, and um, every year um, she will slaughter some chickens in my backyard. She'll cook a, a stew. They go on a bus tour. This is loved by everybody. At, uh, it's the best day in, at the, in the year. So I wanted to kind of celebrate Alice. or to, I can never cook like Alice, so I thought it is not possible. But appropriately for a ceramics factory you cooked it in clay right i did yeah well i thought because i thought um i could take the recipe of hers you know and but i, I couldn't i could not make it but i could uh, take all the ingredients and put it inside the chicken and that uh, recipe is we have the book in front of us it, yeah. but, but Lonnie, it's not actually one book it's three books and here also some recipe cards yes so i mean if anyone's expecting like an art book or a coffee table book, it's not quite that, is it? You know, we wanted to create a book that you can use that is functional as well. And that's also why it, we came up with the whole idea of creating a cookbook. So the idea was with this book to tell all these stories about the people that we actually work with, the people that are behind the scenes, 
and also, for example, with the food memories that we we really appreciate and celebrate and tell the story of the you know the little octopus that always runs around the office who knows everybody that he also gets gets a, a place in the story that was super important for both Søren and I. It comes in a beautiful box it presentation box, yes. box yeah. and inside are three books yes. in very nice primary colors yeah. yellow blue and green and then the red folder filled with all the recipes are the same recipes that are in the books yeah. and tell me about the three the, the, the three different books what what are they if we can get them over here yeah the the idea with the the recipe cards was that when you have your cookbook and you're standing in your kitchen it always gets super dirty yeah. we all know that Greasy and you fingers. can't open it and you it doesn't it stay open. Yeah, you yeah. stain red wine on it. That, that is pretty charming. But we thought it would be a great idea with the recipe cards that you just find that recipe and then you can focus on that also for when you go shopping and whatever. But then we have we have the yellow one, the quarter past noon, which is mainly a, a book that describes uh, our culture in, and tradition. So Søren decided that I think every Friday, last Friday at the end of the month, he would create a food memory. So he would have a little interview with this specific person that he picked out, um, and then he would create his version of the food memory. And we have, I think, a Philippine one and a Chinese, some Chinese dumplings. Mexican. Mexican. Some very some... complicated xiaolongbao dumplings. Yeah. Have you tried it? <laughs> I haven't tried it yet. Yeah. Not sure I'll try that one, but... No. It's, it's, it's largely plant-based, or certainly the menu at uh, Little Petra is yeah. plant-based, but also very sustainable, and I was very intrigued by the idea of eating your Christmas tree. Yeah, well, well that started actually, it was with quarter past noon, and I decided that we should eat the, the Christmas tree. <laughs> and um, it's also just to show everybody what you can use the Christmas tree for instead of just throwing it out. Here in Denmark and England, you throw it out on the street. Um, so every day I took a little bit off the tree, for the whole month, and then I made a new recipe. So at the end of the month, just before anybody went on holidays, the Christmas tree was eaten by everybody. <laughs> and actually, this yeah. I think people will be listening to this after yeah. Christmas, so there's going to be a lot of dried Christmas trees about the place, and yeah. you often dry the, uh, yeah. the pine needles to use, yeah. so it's, everyone has an ingredient in their home now. Yeah, exactly. But you should think of it as uh, like the Nordic, uh, Nordic rosemary. But it does have a bit of a... Um, you can uh, you can put it in a pan with the butter, or you, can, you know. So it does have a bit of a grapefruit flavors, and this is. Then we have made a little uh, ode to our cafe, Little Petra, which is uh, we worked with the UK illustrator Isabella Coche, uh, and have only done illustrations. He's done all illustrations for this book, uh, so it's super beautifully put together. Uh, and then it's of course all the recipes that we that we have had and have all the favorites from the cafe, Little Petra. The last book is actually us. It's basically us traveling out into to the big world. Uh, it's designer stories. We have visited uh, Karen Panton in, in her home in Munich, uh, where Søren made a beautiful color block dinner. That's also a good story in it. Uh, and we have also a beautiful story about Anne Jakobsen, where um, our press team invited all press uh, to a picnic in the, the Bellevue area, north of Copenhagen. And what he did was to, he found out that Arne Jacobsen actually wanted to be a gardener, or if he couldn't be an architect or designer, he wanted to be a gardener. So he made this uh, this lunch built on a forest floor, basically. So 
So it was a way to look a little bit or give another angle on our designers than always talk about the product. We want this to also be to, to come alive on social media and also come out with new recipes. There is a space in the box for extra recipes and a little piece of chocolate or whatever you want to hide, a little notebook. Um, so we will come out with more recipes over time. And that's also a way to treasure all our good times and our good stories around design and around the products. And traditions quarter past noon, the three books and recipe cards in their lovely posh presentation box is currently available in the store on Crom Princessagave in Copenhagen. And I'm told it will be distributed online via newmags, new-mags.com. The price will be around £130 and... Rather unusually for a book, perhaps a first, there's also an accompanying limited edition apron and a tablecloth. For Monocle in Copenhagen, I'm Michael Booth. Thank you very much, Michael, and their book is out now. And this week, global media tension was on Iowa. Caucuses, which you see voters in the Midwestern state select their preferred candidates for November's presidential election, kicked off the 2024 campaign. Our correspondent, Thomas Lewis, spoke to journalists at two of Iowa's best-read news outlets for their view on the state and on the state of its media. Well, the recent story of the media here in Iowa over the past few years is pretty similar to that in other parts of the United States and indeed elsewhere, particularly for those publications in print. But one newsroom that's bucked that trend over the past few years is Little Village. It was launched in 2001 and is an alt-monthly culture and politics magazine. And I've made the drive from Des Moines today here to Iowa City to come and meet the team behind one of Iowa's most popular print publications. In a moment, we'll hear from its news director, Paul Brennan. But first, I spoke to publisher Genevieve Trainer, who explained why Little Village's readership has grown and grown over the past few years. I think people do believe in print. Newspapers are different, but especially magazines like ours that are keepsake that, you know, they last a whole month, you know, people collect them. And there was something that we saw during the pandemic when everyone was so isolated from each other that folks just really wanted something tangible out of the world around them. They wanted to go to the corner store and pick something up and bring it home. They wanted a physical artifact. And I, th I think that that is going to continue forward. And it seems as though as though our advertisers are on board. I, I mean, people people seem to see the value in print. And it is just a, a better value. You know, if it's sitting on someone's coffee table for a month, a lot more ad views are going to happen than if you're in an email or on Facebook. So one thing that I'd say is that while it's always sort of been news and culture, I would say that over the course of the pandemic, the local readers really came to, to trust us more as a news source because they were finding that we had more frequent updates, more insightful coverage than some of the other local spots. And I mean, other local spots have been up and down. The industry is facing a hard time. It's not just alt-weeklies. So we went from being known for our cultural coverage to, to being a trusted, more trusted news source. A lot of that is thanks to Paul as news director and the happenstance of the pandemic. But yeah, it's, it's been an interesting change to watch. Most of the news outlets in the state are owned by out-of-state corporations. The Gazette in Cedar Rapids is an exception, but Gannett owns the register, the biggest paper in the state, which they have cut back 
viciously, especially since Gannett was acquired by Gatehouse. I just checked this morning, the Iowa City Press citizens down to two people. And Iowa City has a tremendous reader base if they were willing to tap into it. But it's Gannett, which is notoriously cheap, taken over by Gatehouse, which is remarkably even cheaper. And uh, they've just decimated the local coverage. One of the things I did that people responded to is that during the pandemic, I covered every press conference. And there was a stretch there where it was at least one press conference a day the governor gave for three months straight. Our governor, she speaks in, let's say, an idiosyncratic way. Sentences break out in the middle of other sentences or looping sentences. It's hard to tell where natural ticks stop and where a deliberate attempt to sort of eject a squid ink cloud of words to obscure a point begin. I would make every day my own transcript of what the governor said. It took hours and hours and hours. And so unlike a lot of places that would just offer summaries and summaries that sort of rationalized what she was saying, I would report on what she actually said, big chunks of text. We're in, obviously, coming up to the Iowa caucuses. It seems like everyone's pretty tired of them here already. Uh, yeah, how, how is Little Village sort of approaching that so far? Does it feel like a different time as well this time around? Well, uh, yeah, I, I, think, I, I think we're approaching it with a certain air of bemusement. There is no effective contest on the Republican side which is sort of remarkable considering the man is facing 91 felony charges at the moment. But on the other hand, when he was elected president the first time, he was in the middle of settling a lawsuit for fraud from Trump University, and that didn't dissuade the state of Iowa in the general election for voting for him. He did not win the Iowa caucus last time. Ted Cruz did. On the Democratic side, well, Last time we had, I believe, 19 or at one point 20 candidates, but one of them never made it out of Florida to come here. And Biden came in fourth, which was his best showing ever in the Iowa caucuses. So Biden has no particular connection to Iowa. And when he was here in uh, 2019, leading up to the uh, caucus at the beginning of February in 2020, he was clearly half-assing it. He was not putting in the effort. I don't know how many times I saw him. But he was not putting in the effort that other candidates were. He seemed sort of bored by the whole thing. Well, you've talked a lot, actually, about Iowa sort of changing quite a lot, whether that means that Iowa's becoming more polarised politically or whether people just are quite proud of having this first-in-the-nation thing and actually do go and sit down and sort of listen, whether people take it seriously in terms of their their role in the, the process. It's hard to answer that question because people very much want to be that person, but it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to pan out. I think they go like you would see a top 40 band, not a band that you're a fan of, you know, when you're comparing it to shows. There's this perception that having early access to the candidates confers greater insight or greater knowledge and that that doesn't really play out. And I think it goes to the fact of how people are educated in approaching politics. And and I think it you know, goes to all of the things that Republicans are doing right now to undermine education, especially Iowa, our state quarter, <laughs> says we're known for education, and I think we used to be. But if people don't know what to do with that information, then it's not going to 
give them any extra benefit just being in the presence. And if anything, when you're in the presence of somebody with as enormous a personality as these politicians have, it can be more overwhelming than just, you know, reading about it in the newspaper. And, and I think that there's a need across the country, you know, certainly not in Iowa alone, but across the country, just a need to educate kids and adults in in how to politics. <laughs> Genevieve Trainer and Paul Brennan there of Little Village, one of Iowa's most popular print publications, speaking to me at their headquarters here in Iowa City. Well, let's make the trip back to Des Moines now to assess just how unusual a caucus season it is this time around here in Iowa. I'm going to meet Kathy Bradovich. She is one of the most recognisable political columnists here in the state and is the head of the new online news service, Iowa Capital Dispatch. More than 2,200 newspapers have closed in this country in the last two decades. And beyond that, newspapers that have managed to stay open have laid off tens of thousands of journalists. So that leaves a lot of gaps in terms of topics that the existing newspapers and other media are able to cover. One of those big gaps is, is at state houses. So coverage of the legislature, coverage of state government, coverage of statewide politics. Of course, that's not too much of a problem in Iowa being an early nominating state, at least on the Republican side. We get a lot of interest in covering politics in Iowa, but there's not a lot of interest in covering things like licensure boards that license doctors, or there's been a dearth of coverage of, of things like higher education. It's an unusual season in terms of the caucuses for a number of reasons. If, if you look at just the competitive Republican race, I don't recall a race that's really been, you know, that didn't involve an incumbent that had less competition. It's been a sort of a, a race about, you know, can anyone beat Trump? And at the moment, the answer looks like no. Iowa very much has shifted to the right. And I think that it's there's a combination of, of reasons. I think that the rural areas have felt um, disconnected from what's going on in the state capitol in Des Moines for a long time. I put some of it at the feet of Donald Trump, that his force in the party to kind of help expand the polarization. He didn't invent the polarization, but to expand the polarization. And it's been kind of an interesting strategy by the Republican Party of Iowa since the 2016 caucuses that they were going to be all in for the nominee, no matter who it was. And once Trump was president, they're going to be all in. You know, for once he was the nominee, actually, they've been all in for him, all his policies, regardless of, you know, the scandals and the, his current legal trouble. And I think a lot of the party still is all in for Trump. And certainly the Republican electorate, the vast majority, are still supporting Trump. Yes, they're showing up to see the other candidates. Um, and there are independents who would normally vote Republican, some of whom are still for Trump, but some of whom have been turned off of him that are certainly looking at some of these other candidates. But nobody's been able to gain any traction. I think it's pretty likely Iowa would vote for Trump again. So, you know, Iowa typically had been considered a swing state. And, you know, certainly its history shows in presidential elections, Iowa has been a swing state. Maybe it will be again someday, but I would not put it in that category now. I would put it in 
deep red territory right now. And you know, over the years as I've been covering it, we actually had a thing called uh, political tourism, where people from, particularly from out of state, would they'd call me up on the phone and they would say, you know, I want to come in from Missouri or I want to come in from that. We, there was actually a couple from Hawaii who literally moved here for a year just so that they could, you know, actually volunteer for campaigns and really take in the whole uh, caucus process on the Democratic side. And so I have not seen as much of that. I don't hear as much from people who say, yeah, I came in to the state just to experience the caucuses. But when we talk to people at Trump rallies or rallies for some of the other candidates, we do run into people from Nebraska and Missouri and, you know, South Dakota, neighboring states quite often. Maybe some people take it for granted, but new people are discovering, you know, just how cool that is, you know, every four years. And, you know, young voters see that they have an opportunity to actually have a voice and speak to these presidential candidates and tell them what they care about or ask them questions. I mean, there's a monolith in terms of particularly politics in the state, but there's still some pretty hot blue spots, um, especially the biggest cities tend to be uh, Democrat controlled and people are not necessarily on board with everything that the Republican leadership is doing on particular issues. Thank you very much, Thomas. Always good hearing from you. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks, as ever, to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries or something, a title you want to see on the stack, email me at fbandmonaco.com. Remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just go to monaco.com. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Mm-hmm.